The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. The impeachment will be televised. Welcome to my weekly report for Thursday, October 31st, 2019. Thank you for listening to this independent news, which appreciates your support through the donate button at buzzburbank.com. When Donald Trump went to a baseball game on Sunday, he did not take his 13-year-old son. He took Melania, Ivanka, and some of his biggest Republican supporters, Senator Lindsey Graham, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, Representative Matt Gates of Florida, Liz Cheney of Wyoming, and others. He had not been invited to throw out the first pitch at any of the World Series games in the nation's capital and said he didn't want to anyway because the Kevlar vest he'd have to wear would make him look too heavy under the suit he wore to the ballpark. In fact, the Washington Nationals had not invited him at all, hoping to avoid politics. Trump invited himself and made the arrangements through the Major League Baseball organization instead. Instead of sitting in the owner's suite, Trump was given a skybox of his own. The Nats owners wanted no part of this. More specifically, Trump played golf with MLB Commissioner Rob Manfred on Saturday at the President's Golf Course in Sterling, Virginia. Trump's presence was announced at the end of the third inning as part of a tribute to our military veterans. That's the moment Trump realized he was not at one of his rallies, where he was in control of a crowd of red hats that had been carefully screened to keep out dissenters. Instead, Trump had ventured, perhaps for the first time, into the real Washington, D.C., the one that consistently votes for Democrats. He never dines outside the White House unless it's at his D.C. hotel. He never goes to the Kennedy Center or the correspondence dinners or, for that matter, any sporting event ever. But on this day, Trump was filled with pride that on his watch, U.S. Special Forces had killed the founder and current leader of ISIS. Trump went to the ballpark for this veteran salute to be hailed as a hero. It didn't work out the way he'd hoped. He stood and smiled and pointed at the jumbotron where he and his entourage were comfortably seated in a skybox. But the smile faded from Trump's face when he heard the crowd in that stadium break into a chorus of booing that reached nearly 100 decibels. They were loud and long. And then he heard that chorus turn into a chant that he himself is responsible for. Lock him up, they chanted. Trump's own crowd chant for Hillary Clinton had been turned on him, and it gave Democrats and others reason to cheer on social media for at least a couple of days afterward. It is not a proud moment for our nation when a mob of Americans chants that someone, much less the president, should be imprisoned. It might not be a good thing for the rest of the world to see, or maybe it is. But it was a cathartic release for frustrated Democrats and others. It gave them a satisfaction they felt they'd been denied. Trump likely did not see the sign held by two veterans that read Veterans for Impeachment or the big red Impeach Trump banner that spanned an entire row of seats. Those two vets were from a group called Common Defense, and they could only afford two World Series tickets that, for decent seats, cost thousands of dollars. Otherwise, they say they would have brought more veterans from their group. Many in the crowd turned to the skybox and gave Trump a middle finger salute. Former high school baseman Donald Trump once claimed that he'd been courted by several major league farm clubs but turned down those offers because they couldn't afford to pay him enough money. He left this game in the eighth inning, probably to beat the traffic. Trump was booed in Nationals Park again last night when one of his campaign ads appeared on the Jumbotron during a viewing party in Nats Park for Game 7 in Texas.
Booing a president at a baseball game is as American as the game itself. Nixon, Carter, Reagan, and both Bushes were booed at the ballpark, and Herbert Hoover before them. But none of them had to listen to chants of, lock him up. Washington lost that game before going on to win the series, but to millions of Americans in Washington, D.C., Washington State, and points in between, Sunday felt like a victory. And it's probably for the best that Trump did not bring his son. Golf is more Trump's game these days, and he was out on the links with the baseball commissioner late Saturday afternoon as the raid to capture or kill Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi was about to begin. The U.S. has been searching for al-Baghdadi for years, and the world is, for now, a somewhat safer place without him. Al-Baghdadi was responsible for the deaths of four Americans, including humanitarian aid worker Kayla Muller, who had been kidnapped by ISIS and repeatedly raped by its leader. The dangerous U.S. operation to take out al-Baghdadi began to take shape a month ago, and it was named after Kayla Mueller. In true reality TV style, Trump tweeted cryptically Saturday night that, quote, something very big has just happened. Around bedtime, the White House announced the president would have a major televised address Sunday morning at 9. On TV the next morning, after a dramatic 21 minutes after 9, Trump would describe with gleeful detail exactly how al-Baghdadi had died, or in his words, violently eliminated, claiming he'd watched as it happened. Like a movie, he said, quote, his body was mutilated by the blast. But Trump could not have known these details at the time, even if he'd watched the video in real time. He may have seen more video later, but even then it was silent footage taken by overhead surveillance that could not see inside the tunnel where al-Baghdadi had reportedly died. Even with technology to detect body heat, it was impossible to have seen what Trump described unless you were one of the American special ops soldiers who actually cornered al-Baghdadi. The president described al-Baghdadi at the moment of his death as, quote, whimpering, crying, and screaming all the way. He died like a coward, said Trump, in a provocation to ISIS around the world from Afghanistan to the Philippines. He died like a dog, Trump said. The commandos who conducted the raid might have told him all this later, the kind of gory details in which Trump seems to revel, but military officials have not, say they cannot, confirm the president's description. I got to watch much of it, said Trump. These soldiers were wearing body cameras during the raid, but Trump had not seen that footage yet before he went on TV to gloat about what he had accomplished. Trump was so excited about the details of how al-Baghdadi was targeted and killed, but It was too much detail in the eyes of the U.S. military. In his victorious Sunday morning speech-slash-news conference, he spilled the beans about the eight helicopters, their route, their speed, and their altitude. He talked about a robot on standby and about how special ops broke through a sidewall to bypass front-door booby traps. Some of this information is, was, highly classified. But it was a time for gloating for Trump. Sure, a president has the authority to declassify anything, but when one does, it forces our intelligence and military officials to turn to alternative methods, even when there is no option better than the one that had been exposed and ruined. The good news, such as it is, is that Trump got some of the sensitive information wrong, according to military and intelligence sources for NBC News. NBC reports that much of what Trump revealed made them cringe Current and former intel officials say they have long agonized over what to put in Trump's briefings, quoting one, because who knows if and when he's going to say something about it. He has no filter. 
The official continued, if he knows something and he thinks it's going to make him appear smarter or stronger, he'll just blurt it out. Trump has habitually spilled state secrets, creating nightmares for U.S. intelligence. He told Philippine President Duterte about a U.S. nuclear submarine in Asia and spoke publicly about the nuclear weapons we keep in Turkey that we did not until then talk about. He baffled and angered Britain by releasing classified details about the terrorists behind the Manchester Arena bombing. He refuses to give up his unsecured smartphones. And, of course, there was that infamous moment in the Oval Office in which Trump revealed sources and methods to two top Russian officials. The White House gave the media a photo of Trump, Vice President Pence, Defense Secretary Mark Esper, and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs all seated around the Situation Room table, hoping to match the historic Situation Room photo of Obama, Biden, and Hillary Clinton in the taking of Osama bin Laden. But there are stark differences in those two photos that indicate the Trump administration photograph was staged. In the Obama-era photo during the bin Laden raid, we see all eyes focused on a video screen, paper coffee cups strewn across the table, and all the visible Ethernet cables are plugged into laptops. In the Trump photo, each participant is posing, sitting sharply upright with their game faces on, nearly all of them looking toward the camera, but few of them focused on the same thing. Around them are seven unplugged Ethernet cables. Trump wanted this to be his bin Laden moment, like the one Obama had. In fact, this was, as these type of operations go, the biggest there is, he said. Osama bin Laden was big, said Trump, but Osama bin Laden became big with the World Trade Center. This, said Trump, is the man who built a whole, as he'd like to call it, country. His was bigger. The biggest there is, as he put it. It was a swift and especially dangerous operation for American personnel, but there was not a single American casualty, despite the firefight that was fatal to a number of ISIS fighters. Special Ops had done it again, again with the help of U.S. intelligence acting on information from Iraq and the Kurds. It was the CIA that had located al-Baghdadi, the same CIA that's been part of Trump's deep state conspiracy theory, part of the intelligence committee he has derided since before he took office. It's part of the same family of U.S. intelligence agencies that warned us Russia had intervened in our last election to help Trump get elected, a fact that Trump wrote off as the Russia hoax. This is the same intelligence community that has given us two whistleblowers from deep inside his White House, whistleblowers the White House has called radical unelected bureaucrats. Make no mistake, the killing of al-Baghdadi is a relief to the world and a blow to ISIS. It also apparently gathered a good deal of additional intelligence about ISIS, as had been the case with the bin Laden raid. But al-Qaeda grew and spread after the killing of Osama bin Laden, and ISIS appears to be in position to do the same now that their leader has been killed, with some provocative language thrown in by Trump, the dogs and the cowards. Trump's speech and subsequent news conference were quite unlike the Obama announcement that bin Laden had been killed. It was instead a gloating of questionable taste and taunting of the ISIS he claims is 100% defeated. Usually, before a president conducts an operation of the sort that took out al-Baghdadi, he notifies the Gang of Eight, the Democratic and Republican members of the House and Senate who serve on intelligence and national security committees. Trump did not do that, at least not for the Democrats. House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff was left in the dark likely because of his prominent role in Trump's impeachment. But Russia knew about the raid ahead of time. 
So did Turkey and a couple of Senate Republicans. Just no Democrats. U.S. military actions are not supposed to be partisan. Russia and Turkey were notified ahead of time since they managed the airspace over ground that's controlled by Al-Qaeda. Russia and Turkey stepped aside on that day to allow in the U.S. helicopters without knowing the target. Russia was the first to be thanked by Trump, then Turkey, Syria, and Iraq with a nod to the Kurds he'd abandoned in his withdrawal of troops from Syria. But only a nod even though the Kurds of Iraq and Syria had provided the U.S. with more intelligence than any other nation. The chairs of those intelligence and security committees, meanwhile, were unusually kept in the dark. Trump says out of a fear of leaks, even though there were no leaks with the intel committees were notified prior to the bin Laden raid. This has been noticed by the impeachment committees. It was certainly noticed by Adam Schiff. The New York Times reports that Trump knew that the CIA and special ops were getting close to locating al-Baghdadi when he abruptly ordered U.S. troops to retreat from Syria after a phone call with the president of neighboring Turkey. The withdrawal made the tricky and dangerous al-Baghdadi operation even more complicated, and Trump was ripping support away from the same Kurds he had abandoned the week before. That's what the Times got from intelligence, counterterrorism, and military officials the day after the raid. For the U.S., the pullout meant a shortage of troops, spies, and reconnaissance aircraft. The mission had been called off at the last minute twice already before it could actually finally be carried out. Intelligence officials tell the Times that al-Baghdadi's death happened not because of Trump's policies, but in spite of them. Trump desperately needed a victory as impeachment closed in and as he took fire for his decision to completely withdraw from Syria. And although he argues that taxpayers should not have to, quote, pay for the next 50 years of Middle East turmoil, he is willing to leave hundreds of our troops in Syria for the oil. In fact, those numbers may ultimately match the number of U.S. troops he ordered withdrawn from Syria. In other words, no U.S. troops are leaving. They're all staying to protect the oil from the ISIS fighters who'd likely use it to make money for regrowing their caliphate. Keeping ISIS out of the oil fields is wise. Taking the oil for ourselves makes us appear as greedy imperialists. Trump said Saturday he wants to make a deal with ExxonMobil or one of the other big oil companies, adding, we should be able to take some also. It's an idea Trump has liked since the U.S. invasion of Iraq when he argued the U.S. should, quote, keep the oil. But intelligence and military leaders see some advantages to having U.S. troops in those oil fields, including providing locations for counterterrorism operations. In other words, the military sees it as a way to make up for its withdrawal from Syria's border with Turkey, a way to kind of cancel out Trump's order to retreat, quoting one official like feeding a baby its medicine and applesauce. Those remaining troops could be especially helpful in the continuing fight against ISIS and in keeping an eye on Russia and Turkey as they occupy areas once controlled by U.S. troops, all of which makes our NATO allies very uncomfortable. But the military has its own concerns. There is not currently a secure land route in and out of Syria, so a small airfield nearby will have to be expanded. And then there's the Syrian government, backed by Russian mercenaries, who have threatened the safety of U.S. troops before. The killing of al-Baghdadi is a victory for the world, for the U.S., and for a beleaguered U.S. president for whom support has been fading just as the open impeachment hearings are about to begin. 
Undeterred by Trump's weekend victory, the House is voting today to open to the public a new phase of the impeachment inquiry. Republicans have complained boisterously about the closed-door hearings that do typically occur before the actual impeachment, whether they take place before a grand jury or for lawmakers in a secure hearing room underground. There were closed hearings in the impeachment of both Nixon and Clinton, and everyone understood. When the doors were closed on Trump's preliminary hearings, today's Republicans howled in protest about the secrecy. Democrats say they'll open the hearings now because, to quote one, this is the right thing to do. Quoting from the announcement by Speaker Pelosi, This resolution establishes the procedure for hearings that are open to the American people, authorizes the disclosure of deposition transcripts, outlines procedures to transfer evidence to the Judiciary Committee as it considers potential articles of impeachment, and sets forth due process rights for the President and his counsel. Pelosi's decided not to wait any longer, not to wait for a court ruling on Trump's appeal of the judge's breakthrough rulings on Friday, and she wouldn't have announced it if she didn't already have the votes. In fact, House Democrats are finished with taking Trump to court. Instead, it's full speed ahead with impeaching him. House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff will coordinate the hearings. Each party gets 45 minutes to ask questions of a witness, and many of the questions will be asked by staff lawyers, more than grandstanding politicians. No more back and forth five minutes at a time between Democrats and Republicans. These will be full-on witness interviews. Republicans will be allowed to request subpoenas for their own witnesses, even though it's up to Democrats whether to approve those requests. And the request of Republican lawyers can be denied if the president illegally refuses to cooperate with the Democrats' requests. At the end, perhaps by Christmas, the impeachment committees would deliver to the full House articles of impeachment. It's the due process Republicans demanded, although they may come to wish they had not wished that wish. It may also be that the House has most of what it needs or all it ever expects to get out of the closed-door hearings. House Democrats began their week buoyed by a court ruling that came at the end of the news cycle on Friday evening. A federal judge ruled that this impeachment inquiry is legal, striking down Republican arguments that it's not. And she ruled that Trump's Attorney General William Barr must give Congress the complete and unredacted Mueller report. She also ruled that Trump's William Barr Justice Department must give Congress the grand jury evidence from the Mueller investigation, evidence Attorney General William Barr has withheld. Congress doesn't usually have the right to see grand jury evidence, but impeachment is different according to a 1974 ruling on using grand jury evidence in Nixon's impeachment. But the current chief judge of the federal district court in D.C., Judge Burl Howell, did more than issue these rulings. She scolded the Trump administration for its stonewalling of Congress, lecturing that the stonewalling had actually made the case against the president stronger. It's a safe assumption obstruction of justice and or obstruction of Congress will be among the inevitable articles of impeachment, along with violating the Constitution's emoluments clause and abuse of power, especially as it pertains to the Ukraine scandal. She reminded Trump's lawyers of his vow to fight all congressional subpoenas, and the judge cited his White House counsel's demand that no one in the executive branch should cooperate with impeachment investigators. 
That, says Judge Howell, only made her more resolved to put those grand jury materials into the hands of Congress. She ruled there is no law and nothing in the Constitution stating there must be a formal vote to impeach in order to start an impeachment inquiry, as Republicans have claimed. The Republican argument that this impeachment is phony or illegal? Wrong, said the judge. The stonewalling that kept lawmakers from seeing the Mueller report and those grand jury documents and forgetting key witnesses to testify? You cannot obstruct congressional justice, ruled the judge. She ordered the Justice Department to give Congress access to those grand jury records and the uncensored Mueller report by Wednesday of this week. Democrats were buoyed again on Tuesday with the testimony of Alexander Vindman, who is the fifth witness to confirm the quid pro quo between Trump and Ukraine. Vindman is an active-duty lieutenant colonel in the United States Army. He is an Iraq War veteran with a Purple Heart Medal. He works in the White House as the top expert on Ukraine on the National Security Council, and he was one of the officials on the line with Trump and Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. He says he is not the whistleblower, but Vindman says he reported the improper conduct he says he heard on that call up the chain of command twice. On Tuesday, despite White House orders not to testify, but protected by a congressional subpoena, Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman appeared in full dress uniform to testify. He is the first White House official to testify among those who listened in on that July 25th call when Trump asked Zelensky to investigate former Vice President Joe Biden. I did not think it was proper, said the decorated Army vet as he began sharing his first-hand eyewitness account of what had occurred in the White House. I did not think it was proper to demand that a foreign government investigate a U.S. citizen, and I was worried about the implications for the U.S. government's support of Ukraine. Vindman told Congress that what Trump was doing would, quote, all undermine U.S. national security. Vindman spoke of a false narrative pushed by Rudy Giuliani, a bizarre conspiracy theory that it was Ukraine, not Russia, that interfered with our 2016 election, despite all U.S. intelligence agencies affirming it was Russia. And then Colonel Alex Vindman dropped a bombshell. He said the White House transcript that supports the claims of the whistleblower is incomplete that things were said that are not in the transcripts the White House had released after it had been hidden in the computer server reserved for the nation's top secrets. Vindman told lawmakers that crucial words and phrases were left out of that transcript, words and phrases Vindman says he tried to put back, but that were not included in the version that went into that carefully guarded server and then ultimately released to the public. The colonel clarified that the ellipses in that transcript, the dot, dot, dots, represent those missing words and phrases, and he had come forth to fill in the dots. Not included in that transcript, says Vindman, is the part in which Trump tells Zelensky there are recordings of Joe Biden discussing Ukraine corruption. Impeachment investigators will now call other witnesses involved in the editing of that transcript, and it's being secreted away in that highly classified computer as they search for proof of a cover-up. The Washington Post reports this morning that the edited transcript was moved to that server or ordered moved there by White House lawyer John Eisenberg right after Colonel Vindman had complained, quote, the president was doing something wrong. Lawmakers also hope to grill Mr. Eisenberg, perhaps anticipating that he would be called unpatriotic, a spy, and worse 
by Fox News, which did subsequently happen, Colonel Vindeman swore under oath that he had come forward because, quote, I am a patriot. With some notable exceptions, some Republicans still managed to find ways to discredit a witness too credible for words, suggesting that Vindman is guilty of espionage. Trump called Vindman a never-Trumper with, as usual, nothing to back up that claim. Although they won't say it publicly, the Washington Post reports that some Republican lawmakers found Vindman's testimony to be damaging to the president, and they are unhappy that Trump's voter base is forcing them to defend the president's indefensible conduct. You wouldn't have known it from the Vindman hearing when a shouting match broke out, starting between Democratic Eric Swalwell and Republican Mark Meadows and then others. Although the colonel had repeatedly testified he does not know the identity of the whistleblower, Republicans on the committee kept asking him who he'd spoken to about his concerns, as if to compile a list of suspects so they can out the whistleblower, whose testimony is no longer needed because even more has been revealed through documents and testimony. Democrats called him out on it, hence the shouting match, in front of this decorated war hero in his full-dress army uniform. Now, with first-hand testimony, Republicans can no longer claim the evidence of a quid pro quo is hearsay. They can no longer credibly complain about the closed-door hearings. All they can do is try to defend this guy. Democrats, meanwhile, are stronger and more confident in their search for solid evidence of what is already known to be true, thanks to the testimony of this Purple Heart veteran. There's now talk of having Colonel Vindman and Ambassador Taylor back for more testimony as star witnesses in the public hearings on TV in the month that begins tomorrow. Taylor says he'd be happy to testify publicly. Testifying today under the cover of subpoena, Alex Vindman's boss, the top official on Russia for the National Security Council, Tim Morrison. Adding drama to Morrison's testimony today, that he announced his resignation from the Trump White House yesterday evening. Morrison had been brought on by former National Security Advisor John Bolton, so it's not surprising he's leaving his post now that Bolton is gone. What is surprising is his announcement that he's resigning the night before he testifies for a congressional impeachment inquiry. Morrison is being asked if he too can confirm a quid pro quo specifically about the withholding of military aid money to pressure Ukraine into investigating Trump's political rival. Democrats are now asking to speak with others who were on the line with Trump and Zelensky, and they say they'll issue subpoenas if the requests don't work. Among those to be called next, Rob Blair, the senior advisor to acting White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney. Getting no cooperation from the White House, Democrats have turned to the key players' aides, deputies, and chiefs of staff. And the most sought-after witness at the moment, former Trump National Security Advisor John Bolton, who, like Ambassador Taylor and Lieutenant Colonel Vindman, sounded alarms about what Trump and Giuliani were doing, and they all got brushed aside. Bolton has now been invited to testify next week for the impeachment committees. Whether he will accept that invitation or require a subpoena or whether he'll show up are all unclear at the moment. Bolton's former deputy, Charles Kupperman, has asked a judge to decide whether he should obey the White House command not to appear for Congress or should he obey the congressional subpoena. 
But between last week's testimony from the U.S. Special Envoy to Ukraine, Bill Taylor, and this week, a Gulf War veteran who works in the White House and who was on that call between Trump and Ukraine's president, and now having access to all that grand jury testimony and the unredacted Mueller report, yeah, the Democrats are ready to open the hearings for the TV cameras now. Republicans are increasingly nervous, even as they appear to get tougher. They see impeachment growing in size and scope. They now see it is a very real threat to their president. They find themselves without a way to defend him. They're frustrated the White House doesn't have any clear strategy for fighting impeachment. And they see that now there's not much they can do to stop the impeachment of Donald Trump. Quoting one veteran Republican senator, it feels like a horror movie. The Washington Post reports that Republican senators are dreading the moment when they must choose between their politics and their conscience when it comes time to acquit or convict. And how will they defend the president before that vote? Two had no comment. One told the Post, I don't need a strategy for impeachment because I may be a juror someday. Former Massachusetts Governor Bill Weld, who's running against Trump in the Republican primary, says the Senate could conduct a secret ballot on impeachment to see how the public vote might go. Republican and former Senator Jeff Flake has estimated there might already be 30 or 35 Republican votes to convict Trump. That's more than the 20 Republican votes needed for an impeachment conviction. And what about the whistleblower who prompted others to come forward? While Republicans work behind the scenes to expose the whistleblower's identity, Trump keeps asking, where is the whistleblower? As Democrats point out, we don't need the anonymous whistleblower anymore. Nearly everything the whistleblower has said in their report has now been corroborated by the White House transcript of the Trump-Zelensky call and by documents and testimony from past and present administration officials. A few other claims by the whistleblower have been substantiated by journalists. There is not only no longer a need to hear from the whistleblower, there's no longer a need to know their identity now that faces, sometimes in uniform, are marching up to Capitol Hill to tell Congress the whistleblower was right. And then there's Vice President Mike Pence, who last month said he was preparing to release the transcripts of his calls with the President of Ukraine. Well, your monthly calendar's about to flip yet another page, and it hasn't happened yet. And now, reports CNN, there are questions about whether it ever will. The transcripts are reportedly still under review by White House lawyers, presumably the same lawyers who did not act on the concerns raised by nonpartisan career diplomats. White House officials say there's really nothing significant in those Mike Pence transcripts. One way Trump has chosen to fight back is to investigate the Russia investigation, apparently to try to support his conspiracy theory that it was Ukraine for Clinton, not Russia for Trump interfering in the 2016 election, and that this was all just a deep state hoax. Trump's put Attorney General William Barr in charge of this investigation, which may also try to dig up dirt on Trump's political enemies. Barr has traveled overseas to get foreign help with this investigation from Britain, Italy, and Australia. Second in charge is Connecticut U.S. Attorney John Durham, who's reviewing the FBI's Russia investigation as a criminal matter. He's looking for ways in which the Bureau might have acted unlawfully or inappropriately. Trump loyalists are excited about this probe, quoting Republican Congressman Mark Meadows of North Carolina, 
Those who damaged America and broke the law to spread this hoax are about to face accountability. He's right, although we may be talking about different people. Gerrymandering update. In North Carolina, a state court has thrown out the map that outlines congressional districts there. The court's three judges ruled there is evidence beyond a reasonable doubt that the map was an unconstitutional partisan gerrymander that favors the GOP. The judges said they would postpone the primary elections if Republicans appeal their decision. Republicans and Democrats are relatively equal in number in North Carolina, but Republicans, thanks to their gerrymandered map, occupy 10 of the 13 seats that state has in the House of Representatives in Washington. And as more college students get more active politically, the Republican Party is working harder to suppress the student vote. College students are primarily Democrats, 45% of them compared to the 24% of Republicans and the 29% of the independents. Mobile polling places on college campuses have boosted the student vote recently, but in Texas, Republican officials have put a stop to them. They accomplished this by requiring all polling places to be open for the entire 12-day early voting period, knowing that colleges across the state wouldn't be able to afford to do that. Result? A lower turnout by Democratic students in Texas. In Florida, Republicans work repeatedly to put a stop to early voting on campuses. Florida Republicans have also subverted the will of the voters who decided former felons should be allowed to vote by imposing a kind of poll tax requiring former felons to pay court fees before they can vote. Republicans in New Hampshire passed a law that just went into effect requiring newly registered voters to establish a domicile in the state to get a state driver's license and auto registration, driving the cost of just registering to vote into the hundreds of dollars. Result? A lower turnout by Democratic voters in New Hampshire. Wisconsin has cracked down on students using their student IDs to vote by creating complicated new rules for student IDs. Tennessee Republicans created a loophole in the law requiring election officials to help high school students register to vote. Study after study has confirmed that making voting more convenient increases voter turnout. Ergo, making it less convenient for some suppresses the vote for some. After a year of waiting, we learned this week from a Justice Department court filing the reason the FBI held back certain information from Congress during the confirmation of Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. Quoting the filing from William Barr's Justice Department, much of the information in the supplemental background investigations file and tip records relates to Judge Kavanaugh's alleged conduct as a teenager and young adult, decades before his distinguished career in public service began and does not concern the performance of his duties. DOJ argues in that court filing that what the FBI found is, quote, unquestionably private and that it could, quote, subject Judge Kavanaugh to harassment or embarrassment. Under this president and a Republican Senate, the U.S. budget deficit exploded this year to nearly a trillion dollars. The gap between income and spending grew by 26% in 2019, grew by $205 billion. The federal deficit has increased by 50% since Trump took office, most notably since his tax cut for corporations and the wealthy. The Federal Reserve just yesterday lowered interest rates again for the third and perhaps final time as it tries to prop up a flagging economy. Jobs and economic growth both sagged last week. 
and the economy is his strong point in the polls. It was just five years ago that the then Republican-controlled House pushed a constitutional amendment to require a balanced budget. But wait, there's more. The national debt is how much money the U.S. owes on the loans it's taken to cover the aforementioned deficit. The national debt makes the deficit look like small potatoes. The national debt now stands at nearly $23 trillion, up 15% since Trump took office. In fairness, the deficit has grown in modern American history under presidents from both parties. This past year, the U.S. has detained more migrant children than during any other time in the nation's history. Immigration officials have picked up more than 76,000 minors traveling without their parents from Central America. That's an increase of 52% from the year before. Under pressure from the Trump administration, Mexico is detaining another 41,000 children, bringing the total between the two countries to 117,000 kids. Dozens of children interviewed about why they walked that long and dangerous route said they knew they'd end up in lousy facilities, but that it was better than living among violence and abject poverty with no opportunity to learn or work their way out. Guatemalan children pushed forward, undeterred by the graves they found along the sides of the road for the migrants who did not make it. Now the children who made it are in detention centers. Fun fact about the wall. The Washington Post reports that the Trump administration has acquired only about 16% of the private land it needs to build Trump's wall. As for the 166 miles of new border barrier being built in Texas, at one year before the target date of just before the 2020 election, construction has progressed only 2%, mostly because all but four miles of that land is private property yet to be acquired by the Trump government. Trump had promised that 500 miles of the wall would be built by Election Day. The Republican governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, has ordered state officials to investigate possible child abuse by a mother who supports her child's gender transition. The decision became a public one when the divorced mother and father disagreed about whether their seven-year-old should continue transitioning from male to female. One of the parties demanding the investigation of the mother has called transgender children part of Satan's plan. Texas Republicans are out to criminalize the use of puberty blockers that have proven effective in preventing suicide in transgender youth. One Republican lawmaker has vowed to add the transitioning of a minor as a child abuse felony. Bob's Commentary, a new meaning for homeowners underwater, spooky headless dolls, and hash at a funeral in the final segment after this. I am proud of what I do here, part of this effort at independent journalism. I feel I'm doing the best and most important work of my career. I do this with great pleasure, but as I've said before, while this newscast is free to you, it's not free to make. So if you'd like to help this effort, please click on the PayPal donate button on the upper right at buzzburbank.com or on your phone just below the title, Buzz Burbank News and Comment. And there's still a little Amazon button on my page. If you're shopping Amazon anyway, going through my page and bookmarking that still helps. Thank you so much to those of you who actively support this independent news. In a battle between Amazon and Microsoft for a $10 billion cloud computing contract with the Pentagon, Amazon was the expected winner. 
But Trump intervened in broad daylight, demanding the contract not be given to Amazon because its owner is Jeff Bezos, who also owns the Washington Post, one of the leading newspapers reporting on the Trump administration. This may not be over. Federal law prohibits politicians from influencing the awarding of contracts, period. Amazon is expected to challenge this decision in court, and it might win. General Motors, Fiat, Chrysler, and Toyota have sided with the Trump administration on rolling back fuel efficiency and clean air standards. Earlier this year, Ford, Honda, BMW, and Volkswagen made a deal to abide by California's tougher standards. This market chaos in clean air standards was in fact set off by Trump's controversial proposal that favors the fossil fuel industry over the health of the planet. The goal of 54 miles a gallon by 2025 is being replaced by the Trump standard of 37 miles per gallon, even as greenhouse gas continues to increase global warming. The flooding in Miami and New Orleans is just the beginning. Scientists have now tripled their estimate of the number of people to be chased from their homes by the rising seas. Around the world, 110 million people live below the high tide level already. With even a conservative take on climate change, it'll be 150 million by the year 2050. The two factors combined could find 340 million people below high tide level worldwide. Scientists say they have changed their estimate because the satellite they had been using to measure elevation was off by about six and a half feet, enough to put most of a single-story house underwater. A group of U.S. Senators, Democratic and Republican, are pushing a bill to clean up the plastic in U.S. waters, hoping it will lead to deals with other countries to do the same. Plastic and plastic particles are maiming and killing fish and mammals and blocking sunlight to life below the surface. That affects both the ecosystem and our food chain. Hurricane-force winds have been fanning the flames of more than 20 wildfires in Southern California this week. Santa Ana winds of up to 80 miles an hour continue through today, with about 19 million Californians under red flag warnings in the Los Angeles area. Thousands of homes have been destroyed. Tens of thousands of people have been evacuated, including from the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library, although a few staff members stayed behind to protect what they could. Although the Reagan Library was at one point enveloped in smoke, the danger there is now under control. Pacific Gas and Electric says its equipment may have started three fires as the company continues to cut off power to hundreds of thousands of homes to avoid starting more. Californians are saying this is not the same place where they grew up, some calling it the end of California as we've known it. The longest-serving African-American in Congress, one of the founders of the Congressional Black Caucus, has left us. Michigan Congressman John Conyers Jr. helped make Dr. King's birthday a national holiday and co-sponsored the Voting Rights Act of 1965, but was forced to resign after sexual harassment allegations at age 88. Once considered the dean of the House, Conyers' seniority and job security with the voters in Detroit gave him political capital for pushing liberal and even controversial causes. He voted against the Patriot Act after 9-11, opposed to its infringements on American civil liberties. He called for the impeachment of George W. Bush after that president misled the country about jumping into a war with Iraq. These controversial stands made the late John Conyers popular outside of Michigan. He has now passed at age 90. 
two notable passings in Hollywood this week. After seven wives, seven divorces, and a blizzard of cocaine, the legendary Robert Evans, producer of The Godfather, Serpico, Rosemary's Baby, True Grit, Harold and Maude, and Chinatown, has died at the age of 89. Actor and comedian John Witherspoon, who starred in the Friday movies, has passed at age 77. He played Mr. Jones, the father of Ice Cube's Craig character, in the movies Friday, Next Friday, and Friday After Next. Maleficent, Mistress of Evil, is again the top ticket-selling movie of the week with another $20 million. Joker is second at $20 million but continues to set box office records worldwide. The new animated Adams Family is third. Other top titles include Zombieland, Double Tap, Countdown, Black and Blue, Gemini Man, The Lighthouse, Abominable, and the story of AC versus DC, The Current War. For previews, theaters, showtimes, and tickets, please use the Fandango link at buzzburbank.com. Mark Zuckerberg promised that his new Facebook news would be dedicated to, quote, deeply reported and well-sourced journalism. But the new service is already under fire for making one of those news sources Breitbart, which has been closely associated with the alt-right. Breitbart is one of the 200 publishers featured in the test version of the new news feature from Facebook, currently available in only parts of the U.S. Twitter, meanwhile, is tired of the tomfoolery and, starting in November, is banning all political advertising worldwide, be it for a candidate or an issue. Ahead of 2020, Twitter is seeking to avoid the controversy about Facebook's unclear policies. That will cost Twitter some money. Facebook, meanwhile, expects to make $400 million on political ads in the year ahead. And all of this news has inspired this week's comments from Salon.com's Bob Seska. Thank you, Buzz. You know, I've always preferred Twitter to Facebook. In fact, these days, I prefer severe testicular injuries to Facebook. And if I could hastily abandon Mark Zuckerberg's data mining operation, I would totally do it. Unfortunately, I need to promote my work, so I hold my breath and deal with Facebook's ongoing nincompoopery. Frankly, I envy those who can bail out whenever they choose. You might have heard that Twitter's Jack Dorsey has decided to summarily ban all political advertising on his platform, another reason why Twitter continues to be my thing. Yes, Twitter is screechy, obnoxious, and there are still way too many trolls and creepazoids dodging the terms of service, but whenever I'm on Twitter, which is most of the day... I feel like I'm plugged into the hub, the nerve center of the political discourse, for better or worse. Nothing could be more educational, entertaining, and relentlessly infuriating on the internet. And Lord help me, I'm happy to be there. On the same day when Twitter took decisive action to thwart the blitzkrieg of paid propaganda, Facebook executives, on the other hand, announced they were banning eggplant and peach emojis whenever they were posted with sexual intent. Put another way, one platform's busily confronting a serious crisis, while the other platform is regulating produce. Remind me again which platform deserves our attention and which platform should be ejector-seated onto the social network slag heap with the likes of Friendster and MySpace. As if that weren't bad enough, Zuckerberg shrugged off the fact that despite hiring fact-checkers, Political ads with known falsehoods are still being approved and posted by its corporate goons. 
Likewise, we just heard that Zuckerberg is allowing certain publications to flagrantly violate Facebook's rules, rules that Facebook more or less invented retroactively to punish hundreds of publishers a little more than a year ago in a mass banning effort known colloquially as the purge. On October 11, 2018, the platform Thanos snapped around 800 U.S.-based accounts, disappearing the pages forever, presumably for uploading political propaganda. While some of the accounts could be shoehorned into the category of propaganda, many of the accounts were run by legitimate publications, with pages featuring links to the accompanying websites, as well as links to partner sites. My girlfriend and podcast partner, author and blogger Kimberly Johnson, was among the users who were purged that day, in addition to other liberal accounts like Reverb Press and Nation in Distress. Despite having spent hours per day for years posting content on Facebook, and despite following the terms of service as they existed at the time, she lost several of her pages, her personal profile account, and even her secret friends and family page. The page run by the publication she worked for at the time, Liberals Unite, was also obliterated, as was her ability to earn a living as a writer. All those years and years of effort, photos, ideas, connections, lost in an instant. No warnings, no temporary suspensions, no three strikes, just vanished with the snap of Zuckerberg's sweaty fingers, mainly because he screwed up royally, stupidly accepting Russian money in 2016 and was facing government regulations but also because he's just a sociopath. Making matters worse, there was no one to whom she could appeal her removal. The only thing she heard back from Facebook was that she engaged in quote-unquote inauthentic behavior. Specifically, she would routinely post the same links across several pages, links to articles she wrote or articles she thought were valuable or interesting, you know, like we all do on Facebook. There wasn't any rule against doing such a thing, but the AI bots or admins at Facebook decided that doing so was inauthentic. I know I promote my work on both my Facebook page and my personal one. My hunch, though, is that Facebook was merely interested in telling Congress and the Trump administration that they snuffed out a bunch of political propagandists, including many liberal pages, a move that coincided with Trump's griping about how social media was only cracking down on conservatives like Alex Jones. This was pure politics a scam to sidestep government pressure, nothing else. Hence the harsh, warningless removal of those 800 pages. You know how else I know it was a scam? Ben Shapiro's The Daily Wire has been doing exactly what Kimberly and others were permanently banned for doing. An investigation by a newsletter called Popular Information revealed a network of 14 large Facebook pages that exclusively promote content from the Daily Wire. None of the pages reveal their connection to the Daily Wire, and many purport to be independent media outlets. Conservative News and nearly all of the other sites in the network publish the same content from the Daily Wire at the same time with the same text. In other words... They are centrally controlled. This is exactly what Kimberly was doing, but somehow more than a year later, Ben Shapiro is still doing it. And, shocker, it's actually working. While the Daily Wire only publishes around 1,000 posts per month, contrasted with, say, the Washington Post's 10,000 items per month, the Daily Wire's number of engagements per post literally dwarfed everyone from the New York Times to USA Today and all points between. 
It seems the Daily Wire is still permitted to feed off the geyser of traffic provided by Facebook's popularity. A geyser, by the way, that used to be available to everyone until late 2013 when Facebook began to throttle the reach of pages run by outside publishers such as The Banter. It gets worse. Many of the Facebook pages run by Shapiro's outfit are presented as if they're organic pages run by regular people. Not a word about any affiliation with the Daily Wire. When Facebook's head of cybersecurity policy, Nathaniel Gleicher, was contacted by popular information, the executive said that while, yes, the Daily Wire engages in inauthentic behavior, Facebook has no plans to purge any of the affiliated pages or users. Does this double standard remind you of anything? Well, it should. For decades, far-right conservatives drilled it into our heads that the press, especially the television news media, possessed a liberal bias. After being tenaciously hectored by conservative activists and political leadership, editors and production executives gave up. In order to stop the screaming, they decided to overcompensate by featuring more right-wing guests than liberals, namely on the Sunday public affairs shows and on cable news. And now it looks like Facebook has acquiesced too, overcompensating with the same lopsided submissiveness. Facebook is holding us all hostage. The fear of missing out and our own personal odysseys, maintaining our friendships and social media branding, is keeping us chained to the Facebook radiator through all of the platform's ongoing indignities. But it doesn't have to be like that. We have a choice to either bail out of Facebook entirely, which I would love to do but can't, or we can share the hell out of our favorite liberal-leaning voices in publications, not by simply liking or commenting on statuses, but by pumping the hell out of the share buttons, doing what Facebook was made for. And don't worry about missing out if you decide to leave. Eventually, another viable platform will come along to replace Facebook, and everyone on your friends list will migrate to it. And don't forget, there's always Twitter. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thank you, Bob. Get more of Mr. Seska at Salon.com, his Patreon page, and Tuesdays and Thursdays on The Bob Seska Show at BobSeska.com. He'll have a fresh show this afternoon. I join Bob on his Tuesday shows. The Washington Nationals are the winners of this year's World Series, winning Game 7, 6-2. It's Washington's first baseball championship in 95 years and the first championship series in any sport in which the visiting team won every single game. Halloween 2019. In Germany, more people than ever are stomping around Frankenstein Castle this time of year. The crumbling castle is just 20 miles south of Frankfurt and it's been welcoming the public, minus the pitchforks and torches, since 1977 with Halloween festivities. Visitors wear costumes and encounter a team of 130 actors dressed in their spooky best. An historical museum in Rochester, Minnesota, has been showing people spooky dolls. The dolls are on display are often chosen because of their unusual eyes, the kind sometimes that pop open when the doll's picked up. When the paint has chipped off an old doll's face, it resembles a mummy. Museum visitors have been asked to vote on the creepiest doll. The winner will be announced tonight when dead leaves fly like witches on switches across the sky. They're up in arms in Brigham City, Utah, over one family's Halloween display that features dolls getting their heads cut off by a guillotine. The front lawn also features a bloody nurse standing over a baby incubator containing baby parts and angry-looking babies.
How far are they going to go? Asks one neighbor, adding, and where are they going to stop? Brigham City, Utah, apparently. Happy Halloween. Hash at a funeral. A young woman in Berlin baked two cakes. One was for a funeral reception. The other was for another special occasion. In a wacky sitcom mix-up, her mother took the wrong cake to the funeral reception. At least 13 mourners were examined by doctors after reporting dizziness from eating hash cake. Police have interviewed the 18-year-old baker. This actually happened back in August, but police kept it under wraps until this week out of respect for the mourners. There's jumping the shark, and then there's jumping on the shark. A 27-year-old Florida man jumped off his surfboard at New Smyrna Beach and landed directly on top of a shark. He was treated at the scene for minor cuts and, according to press accounts, drove himself home. Police in Lincoln, Nebraska, are looking for a man who entered a bank to open an account with counterfeit money. The man had offered, as his first deposit into the Pinnacle Bank, a $1 million bill. When the teller informed him there is no U.S. paper money with a denomination of more than $10,000, the man left with no bank account. But he still had the million-dollar bill. And finally, it was the Sunday morning service they shoot on video to post online at the Vestavia Hills United Methodist Church in Alabama when a squirrel crashed through a stained-glass window and set off screaming in the balcony. When the squirrel was being chased, the pastor recounted a Ray Stevens song called Mississippi Squirrel Revival in which a squirrel goes nuts in a church. Panicked parishioners, meanwhile, finally trapped the squirrel with a collection plate. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening and your support through the donate button at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by The Realm Network.